How are we doing, Redeemer? Uh, if we haven't met, uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks again for, for joining us online this morning. I uh, got a few just quick announcements, hopefully, uh, for us today. If you're just joining us online for the very first time and we haven't connected before, we would love to encourage you to, to fill out our virtual Connect card. You can find that Connect card on our homepage at RedeemerBloomington.org. Uh, with the virtual Connect card, you can kind of fill that out. Uh, to get connected with our online community uh, realm, right? Uh, realm is kind of our online community network where you can be, uh, where you can find all the information about what's going on with Redeemer. It's the best way to stay connected with everything that's happening in our church and a, a very essential platform in these days, especially. So uh, you can mark to, to sign up for Realm. You can also mark if you're interested in joining a community group. You can share prayer requests so we can be praying for you uh, and a number of other op- opportunities there as well. Uh, speaking of community groups, our community groups are continuing to, to gather online via Zoom calls and such. Uh, community, groups, community groups are where we live out, being a gospel-centered community on mission, seeing people transformed by the gospel of Jesus to, and built up to be mature disciples. Uh, if you're not connected to a group already, what a better time than now uh, to reach out and get connected. You can reach out to Pastor Kyle at kyle at redeemerbloomington.org and he will get you connected with a group. Uh, a couple more just specific announcements. I also will just direct your attention uh, either before our gathering starts or after the gathering ends. There's a scrolling uh, a list of slides here uh, with different information, but two things I want to point out in particular. Uh, The first is tonight at 8 p.m. there is a personal testimony workshop that will really just give some clear biblical instruction on how to share your story of coming to faith in a way that helps point to that bigger story of the gospel. Uh, Basically, it's essentially kind of equipping you to use your testimony as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with others as you share about how he's transformed your own life. Uh, So take advantage of that opportunity tonight at 8 p.m. There is a Zoom link for that on Realm. Also, uh, the Emotions Redeemed class uh, kicked off this last Thursday. If you you missed it, it was great, and I'm sure we'll have a recording posted for that shortly, if not already. Uh, But the next one is this Thursday night at 8.15 online. Uh, uh, Jesse and Kyle are leading this class on Thursdays to see what the gospel has to say about our emotions and how to deal with them. And so this week we'll focus on engaging uh, our sorrows and depression. And, And just so you know, this is a class not just for those who maybe feel like they're struggling with some of these things, but also for those of us who want to be better equipped to come alongside one another and care for one another as we, as we all face kind of differing uh, struggles with our emotions. So there's more info on that on Realm as well, where you can RSVP, find that Zoom link for Thursday at 815. I want to thank you uh, for your continued faithfulness in, in giving uh, and just encourage you to, to continue to exercise your faith in giving uh, to the church. Uh, you can give to Redeemer via um, Realm uh, and the giving tab there on Realm, or you can also access that through our webpage, uh, RedeemerBloomington.org. Just look for the tab uh, that says give or giving there. Well, one of the, the greatest losses of this season has to be the loss of presence, right? I've, I've heard from, from many of you uh, uh, just how much you miss uh, being present with the gathered church on Sunday, how you miss gathering in a home together 
with your community group. How, how you miss just the simple things of, of getting to go out to eat with, with friends. Um, and, and I feel all those things uh, so deeply myself. Uh, it was never my dream to become a Reformed televangelist, and yet here I am. Uh, I miss seeing your faces each Sunday. I really do not enjoy preaching to a camera. Uh, I'm thankful for Zoom and FaceTime, and I'm sure this is a sentiment many of us have. I'm thankful for the technology that allows us to engage and see some faces and, and converse with one another over that technology. Yet at the very same time, I am so weary of Zoom. Uh, I, I, long, I long to be present with people, uh, to have people over for dinner in my house, to, to hang out together on my deck, to go out to eat, to, to gather in my home with my community group, and to gather together as the church on Sundays in physical proximity with one another seeing one another, hearing one another as we sing and as we read the liturgy. Uh, This season makes us long for presence, and it also helps us to see how important presence is. I mean, it should be clear for us now that the virtual connections are not the same. They're not the same. Uh, it, It helps us appreciate what a gift it is to be present with one another. But there's a reality that as much as we long for and need to be present with other human beings, there's a greater presence uh, that we need immeasurably more, and that's the presence of God. Exodus chapters 32 through 34 really highlights this for us, this reality. These chapters not only show us our need for God's presence, but they also expose the terrible reality that on our own, we can't live with God But we also can't live without him. Exodus exposes the reason for this problem. It points us to the solution and it shows us the effect that comes from enjoying God's presence and beholding God's goodness. That's what we are going to see as we dig into our text today. We'll be kind of examining, uh, kind of swooping over Exodus chapters 32 through 34. Uh, We'll specifically be reading from Exodus 33 verses 12 through 13. And invite you to to turn there now in your Bibles and uh, wherever you're at, invite you to to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. Exodus 33, verse 12 through 23. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall, shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away, away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for your truth. Uh, we are grateful for the technology that allows us to connect together, at least in this mode this morning, to, to study together, to hear from your word together, to worship together. Uh, but Lord, we are longing and, and we're praying for the day when we can do that physically together uh, again. Lord, we pray in this time, though, you, you would show us um, not only our need for, for human presence, but our need most of all for your presence. And that you also show us how available your presence is to us. How even while so many things have been taken from us in Christ, you can never be taken from us, Lord. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to, to really behold your goodness in a way that transforms our lives to reflect your glory more and more. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Um, the, these chapters, they, they show us the problem that keeps us from experiencing God's presence, the solution that's needed, and, and the effect of experiencing God's presence. First, the problem that keeps us from experiencing God's presence. Just a little context for what's happening here in Exodus 32 through 34. Uh, uh, chapters 25 through 31, which we looked at last week, describe the instructions that God gives Moses for the construction and establishment of the tabernacle. The whole point of the tabernacle is for God to dwell with his people to be in their presence, to be their God, that, that in its design and construction and all the related elements, God is making it possible for a perfectly holy and righteous God to be able to dwell with his people. And Moses in those chapters is up on Mount Sinai uh, with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And in Exodus 32, uh, we see, we get a glimpse of what's happening down below, right? We've been seeing what's happening with Moses up on the mountain with God. Now we get to look at what's happening down below with the rest of the people camped at the base of the mountain. And there's a lot in these chapters, uh, but for the sake of time, uh, we're, we're going to kind of summarize much of this and just really especially hit the highlights of chapter 32. So while Moses is up on the mountain with God, the people, they grow impatient, they grow anxious and take their desire for God's presence into their own hands. They approach Aaron, Moses's brother, and ask him to make them gods to go before them. Aaron has the people bring their gold jewelry, and he fashions it into this golden calf, which really, in the Hebrew, it seems like it was more likely a golden bull. In fact, as it's referred to in the Psalms, it references it more like a bull. Uh, the bull being a very common symbol of strength and fertility in the, the surrounding nations of the people in the, in the land of Canaan. Uh, the people are happy to worship God, but they want to worship God on their own terms. They're happy to worship God, but they want to combine their understanding and worship of God with worldliness and indulgence. 
This is, if, if not a violation of the first commandment, it is most certainly a violation of the second commandment to not worship idols. And even as Moses, the, the, feel the irony here, the irony. Even as Moses is receiving instructions for the true worship of God, Israel sets up an idol to worship God as they see fit. Remembering what Israel has experienced before this in the, in the book of Exodus really helps uh, point uh, you to, the, to feel the weight uh, of this complete and total failure. Right? God has just delivered his people in, in such a display of, of power and glory. He's delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, crossing through the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, crushing the sea back down on the Egyptians and destroying them. God has been leading his people in the wilderness through a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's pre- they, they see it. They see God leading them in that pillar of cloud and fire. God has provided for them manna every morning to supply their need for food. The 16th century reformer John Calvin, as he's commenting on this passage, he he says this. He says, in this narrative we perceive the the detestable impiety of the people, their worse than base ingratitude, and their monstrous madness mixed with stupidity. Could they not see the pillar of fire and the cloud? Was not God's paternal solicitude abundantly conspicuous every day in the manna? Was he not near them in ways innumerable? What they do here is, as the uh, reformer Calvin says, it is utterly stupid. But, But this is the same stupidity of which we are all guilty whenever we sin. Whenever any of us sin, when you sin, all sin involves a complete and just crazy loss of perspective where we lose sight of of God's goodness, where we lose sight of God's generous provision, and we exchange what God offers for something lesser. We exchange what God offers, which is eternal, for something momentary. Sin is the problem that keeps us from enjoying and experiencing God's presence. And in reality, what Exodus 32 is showing us is that all sin is essentially idolatry, which is very much the same idea that the Apostle Paul shares in Romans chapter 1, 25, as as he writes there that humanity exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Paul's point there. Uh, throughout Romans there in those opening chapters, is that we're all guilty of idolatry because we're all sinful. And all sin is idolatry. It's a worship issue. It's It's not just behaviors that need to be corrected. It's hearts that need to be reoriented in their worship of God. And the sin of Israel in Exodus 32 is really a paradigm of all idolatry. We might be tempted to think of idolatry as this rather primitive thing, right? That something, something ancient people did. Uh, we're, we're not crafting golden bulls these days, uh, I don't think. But, but idolatry is more than crafting statues. We are all constantly choosing to worship a host of lesser gods in the form of money, sex, and power. We worship other people's approval in the place of God's approval all the time. 
We want to impress our friends, but at what cost? We worship pleasure, comfort, security that we think that we can gain for ourselves through our own efforts rather than trusting that God, that he is our refuge and strength and our source of comfort. Rather than trusting God that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. C.S. Lewis really captures the essence of our stupidity in our own personal struggle with idolatry in this quote from The Weight of Glory. He writes there, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When God informs Moses on the mountain what the people have done down below at the camp, God God tells Moses that he intends to consume them in his holy wrath. Because God is holy and righteous, he cannot tolerate sin. He must punish sin. And death is the just punishment, the just penalty for sin. God tells Moses that he intends to destroy the Israelites and start over with Moses. Essentially, he's, he's kind of in that, in that moment saying to Moses, I'm going to make you a new Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation, Moses. I'm going to start over with you and kind of scrap the previous plan as it had been unfolding. But Moses intercedes on the people's behalf. He prays and he pleads for mercy. And in his prayer, he pleads to God, pointing to God's glory, God's reputation amongst the nations surrounding. He, he, he points to God's covenant promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation, to, to, to lead him, to give him the, the promised land, uh, to, to bring that seed through the line of Abraham that will, that will crush the serpent's head that began in Genesis 3. And God hears the prayer of Moses and he relents. Now, there's a lot to say about that that we're not going to get into for today. But, but the Bible's content here to leave this tension between God's sovereignty and how God hears and responds to our prayers. He relents from destroying his people, but he is still set on removing his presence from them. In the opening verses of Exodus 33, God tells Moses that he will send an angel, not the angel of the Lord anymore, but an angel who will lead them to the promised land. They, there they will essentially get all the blessings of God with all, without God's presence. And the people of Israel mourn. They mourn because they recognize the problem. They need God's presence. They can't live without God. Yet because of their sinful idolatry, they cannot live with, with God either. Moses, when he returns to discover the people in the midst of their distorted worship of the golden calf, he breaks the stone tablets of, of the God's covenant, the, the law of God, that God had, himself had written his law upon. And, and it's an illustration in that moment that the people have broken their covenant promise to God. They said back earlier in Exodus that they would obey everything that the Lord commanded. Yet so quickly they've deserted the one true God for an idol. They've chased after another lover. The problem here isn't with God's law. 
It's not that God's law is too much, too strict, but the problem is with the people's hearts. The problem is with our hearts. Our hearts are, are sinful. Our, our hearts, as Calvin says, are idol-making factories. And our sinfulness keeps us from enjoying God's good and glorious presence that we so desperately need. That's the problem. But the text is also pointing us to the solution that's needed to experience God's presence. Moses spells out plainly what is needed in Exodus 32, verse 30, where he sa- it says there, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses understands here that atonement is what is needed. Atonement. In other words, he understands that the penalty for sin is death. And even more, it's, it's eternal separation from God. That is the debt that is owed for, for, for your sin, for my sin, for our sin. And that debt must be paid. That penalty must fall on someone. And so Moses goes to God and he pleads for mercy in verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You see here, Moses offers to suffer in the place of the people the death that they deserve for their sin. He offers to be blotted out in their place. But the problem is, Moses cannot make atonement for God's people because Moses himself needs atonement for his own sin. Moses Moses is right. Atonement is what is needed, but he's just not the one who can accomplish it. In chapter 33, God, as as we said, he tells Moses that he's going to have an angel lead the people into the promised land. But the clear implication is that they will get the promised land without God's presence. In a sense, in Exodus 33, God offers his people the religion that the average American really wants. Right? You can have peace and prosperity. You can have success. But you won't have a tabernacle. Because my presence won't go with you. So you won't have the maintenance of confession and sacrifices and offerings and worship and all that sort of thing. You'll get all the blessings of God without the presence of God, without any sort of relationship with God. But Moses will have none of it. He will have none of it. Even though God continues to to say to Moses, hey, Moses, you know, not the people, but with you, I will give you my presence. I will still be with with you. Uh, I mean, even though he, he continues to meet and speak with Moses, Moses will not agree to this. In Exodus 33, verse 14, right? It says that God says to Moses there, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God is telling Moses that God's presence will go with Moses, not with the people, but with Moses, it's singular. It's exclusive. It's pointed towards Moses alone. He'll, he'll go with Moses and he will give Moses rest, but not the people. But Moses refuses. He refuses to go or to be content unless God goes with us, as he says in verse 16. Unless God goes with all of his people. And Moses finds favor with God and God agrees to go with his people. And throughout these chapters, these exchanges, Moses is acting as a mediator for the people with God. 
He intercedes. He prays on their behalf. He, he speaks on their behalf with God. You see, in, in, in our sin, in, in your sin, in my sin, we need atonement. We desperately need atonement. We need to have our debt paid for us. Our sin needs to be paid for. But, but here's the thing. There, the, there is no amount of good deeds that you could ever do to pay off the debt of your sin. No amount. Even if you said from today forward, I will never sin again, which you will. Um, and I will, I will only do good for the rest of my life. There, there's no amount of good deeds you could ever accomplish that would pay off the debt that you owe for your sin. To be guilty of any sin, any idolatry, is to be sentenced to death. And even more severe than the physical death is that, that, that really that death means eternal separation from God's glorious presence. You cannot make it right. You cannot work it off. Because God is perfectly holy and righteous. He demands perfect holiness and righteousness. And we've, you know, hey, we're all in online school these days. We've already flunked out. We've already flunked out. There's no extra credit, no late assignments that we can turn in to work our grade up. It's done. We need atonement. And since we cannot make atonement for ourselves, that means that we need a representative. We need a mediator. But in order to make atonement for us, that mediator must himself be perfect, completely righteous, without any sin. Only then could he step in for you and pay your penalty in your place. And that's exactly who Jesus is. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is the true and better Moses who, who not only offers to make atonement, but he, he accomplishes atonement. Jesus Christ, he, he lived a perfectly sinless life in your place. Perfectly sinless, without sin. And then he willingly went to the cross where he died in your place, suffering the just penalty you deserve for your sins. Not only physical death, but the full cup of God's wrath poured out on him. He suffered effectively on the cross, eternal separation from God for you. God's presence was pulled from him so that you might be brought into it. Jesus rose on the third day, victorious over sin and death. He then ascended to heaven where he is now seated at God the Father's right hand, where he continues as your mediator to intercede on behalf of all of those who put their trust in him. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Through faith in Christ, instead of your name being blotted out of the book that God has written, your sins are blotted out. Through his death in your place. Through faith in Christ, you have a mediator in the throne room of heaven, interceding on your behalf, reminding the Father that your sins, past, present, future, have been paid for, declaring that you are forgiven, declaring that you are accepted, that you are righteous, as righteous as Jesus, because he's given you his perfect righteousness. Declaring that you've been adopted into the family of God. Assuring you that God's presence is open and available for you to boldly come before him. To meet with him. To worship him. To be accepted. And that that presence can never be taken from you. 
Not by your sin, not by any virus, not by any stay-at-home order. God's presence is with you. In fact, for the Christian, we, we know, we're told, God's Holy Spirit dwells within us. Moses points us forward to Jesus. Jesus is the solution that's needed for you. And for you and I to enjoy God's presence. The Son of God. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who alone could serve as our mediator and accomplish the atonement we so desperately need by his life, death, and resurrection, ushering us into God's glorious presence, accepted and celebrated. This is wonderful news. This is wonderful news. The present the presence that we most need in this time, in any time, is available to anyone who will see their need and put their hope and trust in Jesus. Even if you're physically alone in this season, unable to be with other people, you don't need to be alone. And with Christ, you're, you're not alone because God's presence, his very real and glorious presence is available to you through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. You can press into him. You can experience and enjoy his presence even now. And his presence will change you. It will impact you. As we see in these chapters, the effect of experiencing God's presence. Uh, Moses goes a step further in his exchange with God, asking God to show him his glory. Moses is asking this question in Exodus 33 here as a way of asking for kind of a sign of confirmation that God will, in fact, go with his people. And Moses, he wants to see God. He wants to see him. He wants a visual image of God. And God responds by saying two things to Moses. First, he says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will make all my goodness pass before you. The Lord sets it up uh, to put Moses in the cleft of the rock so that God can pass by. And Moses uh, can behold the afterglow uh, of God's glory. Uh, For he tells Moses in verse 20 that he cannot see God's glory directly, right? You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Secondly, he tells Moses that he will proclaim his name, the Lord, in Moses' presence. And he gives Moses a glimpse, not of an image, but of his character in his name here. As God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses wants to see God. He wants to know what God looks like. But instead, God declares his name. Instead of a description of what God looks like, we get a description of the way that God is. God doesn't reveal himself through a visual image. He can't be pictured. That's why you cannot fashion an idol and say, this is what God is like. In Exodus 34, God instructs Moses to to chisel out two new replacement tablets for the ones that were broken. And we read in Exodus 34, verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And this is the name 
that the Lord proclaimed. Verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is who God is. This is his goodness, his glory. The answer to the question, how can a sinful people experience the presence of a holy God? Because God is merciful and gracious. Because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness because God forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And, and you can see the tension. If you're, if you're following along here, you're reading these verses closely. You can see the tension that is present here in Exodus. God is both a God who burns with anger towards sin, but he's also the God who's slow to anger. He's the God who cannot ignore sin, who, who will not clear the guilty, who must punish sin, but he's also the God who forgives sin. He's a God who does not clear the guilty, yet he's also a God who's merciful and gracious. The Bible leaves this tension unresolved until as we read in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Moses couldn't see God. He wasn't permitted to see God and live. All Moses really encountered was the word of God. His name proclaimed to him. But now the word has become flesh. Literally in John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Here is God's presence in the person of Christ dwelling among God's people. And John says, we have seen his glory. God told Moses, you cannot see my face and live. But here now is John and the other apostles in the New Testament telling us, we looked into the face of God and we have seen his glory. In Jesus, we see God's glory and we live. We live. Even more Jesus resolves this tension as, as he comes full of grace and truth. In Christ, forgiveness and punishment, mercy and justice, grace and truth, they all meet together in Jesus. When Christ died, your, your guilt was punished so that you could be forgiven. God's justice was carried out on Jesus so that you could know mercy. The truth of your sin was exposed and dealt with once and for all so that you could experience the joy and peace and life of God's grace. We cannot live without God. And in Christ, we never have to. We never have to. This is God's glory. This is his goodness that we are invited to behold. And to behold his glory and goodness is to be transformed. It's to be changed. At the end of Exodus chapter 34, Moses comes back down the mountain. He's carrying those two new tablets, reconfirming God's covenant with his people. 
And Moses' face is radiant. It's glowing. So much so that the people are freaked out, right? They're, they're actually scared to come near him because his face is radiant. And so whenever Moses speaks to the people, he wears a veil to cover his face. And he takes off the veil whenever he speaks with God. You see, God's glory, God's presence is transforming. It's transforming. It it, it will not leave you the same as you behold it. The Apostle Paul references this this experience of Moses in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how do you behold God's goodness and glory and experience this transformation? Well, it begins with repentance, with seeing the the emptiness of the idols we are so prone to worship and turning in faith to trust in Jesus Christ, to trust in his goodness, putting our hope for acceptance and comfort and security and joy in him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.16, just a couple verses earlier, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It begins with repenting, turning from our sin, our idolatry, and turning to Jesus in faith. And it continues as we, we daily fix our lives, we fix our thoughts, our desires, our hearts on Jesus We behold his goodness by thinking on all that Jesus has done to rescue us. We behold his glory by reading his word, the Bible, filling our minds with the truth of who God is and what he's done to rescue us. Day by day, we we dwell in his presence as we read, as we pray, as we go for a walk outside and and we behold the, the beauty of his creation as we think on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as as we think on the reality that right now Jesus is resurrected at the Father's right hand, interceding on our behalf, reminding the Father that your sins are forgiven. They are paid in full. We behold his goodness as we share that good news with others, as we remind fellow believers of who they are now in Christ, as we encourage one another that, that we are God's beloved children. And, and we, we, we give and we receive that encouragement. And, and as we share the gospel with, with those who don't know Jesus, and we think on the wonder in that moment of how Jesus can rescue and restore anyone, anyone to God's glorious presence. His presence is available to you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, what this week has looked like, his presence is available to you through Jesus Christ, who's paid your debt in full, if you but simply turn and trust. There are so many ways to behold his goodness and glory. And as we do that, we will be transformed. We will begin to reflect God's glory as Jesus transforms us to become more and more like himself, to embody more and more of Christ's patience and mercy and compassion, more and more of his holiness and his grace until one day we are just like him and we get to live with him forever.
What a friend we have in Jesus who longs to meet with you face to face. May you experience that transformation day by day from one degree of glory to the next. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you for revealing your goodness and your glory to us in the person and work of your Son. Jesus, thank you for being our mediator, for making atonement for our sins. Thank you for your willingness to be cut off from God's presence on the cross so that we might be brought in. Holy Spirit, we pray that you will enable us to behold the glory and the goodness of Jesus in such a way that we are made to be more and more like him day by day. We pray that you will not only sustain us in this season, but enable us to be transformed to radiate your glory for others to see so that they might find peace and hope and even joy in your presence, even in this time where we feel so separated. May we behold your goodness, God, and share it with others for your glory and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.